All right, so we're doing a series. We've been doing this for a while about what does it mean to live in a decadent culture. Decadent, not meaning it's extremely chocolate, but meaning it's in decline, it's breaking down. Things are moving out of, you know, from order to disorder. And we've been at this process for a good while. Um, and we were, we were talking about kind of some historical causes for it, and now we're moving into, like, what do we do about it? What does it mean to actually live in a, in a, in a decadent culture? Um, and we're going to continue that, that uh, conversation here. But I want to ask you this. What does the word orthodox mean? What is orthodoxy? Say, wait, say it again. Okay, good. So orthodoctrine, right? Straight doctrine. So doxa, um, it's like, the, it's, like you, it's the right beliefs or the straight doctrine. Very good. What is orthopraxy? Practice. That's right. So we have orthodoxy is right belief, and orthopraxy is right practice or behavior, or, you know, the way you live your life. So which do you think is more likely to bring us into conflict with a decadent culture? Orthodoxy or orthopraxy? Praxy. I, I, I agree. There's a, there's, a, there's a bit of a sense of like, you know, you can believe whatever you want. Just shut up about it, right? And so nobody cares if you're orthodox. But a lot of people care very much if you're orthoprax. And I'm, I was suggesting to you guys over the last couple of weeks that, that 1 Peter is the most relevant book that I have found in the scriptures um, at a moment where the gap between cultural norms and orthopraxy is so, so great and, and, and even widening. Um, if, we are to, if we are to be a people that are not only orthodox but orthoprax, when the world really is annoyed by those things, we're going to need some significant resources. And I think that the, the greatest supply of those resources is found in First Peter. Um, does anybody remember what I said is the thesis of First Peter? You can find it if you can, if you can, find, if you can recall the verse. Where, do, where does Peter kind of make his, like, what's the declaration of First Peter? The, and, and coincidentally, it is a directive to be orthoprax. To live your life in a particular way. Where, where is it? You're living as exiles. Living as exiles. That's exactly right, Nick. And do you remember where it is in the book? No. No, not at all. Okay, that's okay. Verse 1. Uh, what's that? Okay, so it's funny because there is a hint of it in verse 1, and then he kind of drops it. So right out of the gate, there's this little bit of a hint, but it really comes to flower in chapter 2. If you look at it, go to 1 Peter 2, 11. And we could, we, could, we could prove our case by going back up to verse 1. But really his statement here um, is 1 Peter 2, 11. This would be, if you're in the habit of writing in your Bibles, this is, this is the claim of 1 Peter. Okay, This is the, the, the prime directive. 1 Peter 2, 11. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world. And Nick, you used slightly different language. You said, what is it? As exiles, and an ESV says exiles and sojourners or something like that, I think. Is that right? As aliens and strangers, as exiles and sojourners in the world, two, abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul, live such good lives among the pagans that although they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Okay? Now, everything that happens in First Peter after that statement is a particularization of it. He's going to say, listen, this is what it looks like. How do you be an alien and a stranger? 
What does it mean to live such good lives? Well, he gives us category by category. He kind of fledged it. Let me, let, me, let me be more specific. Let me really operationalize this so you know what it is that I'm telling you you need to do. Okay, everything after that. But everything up to it, the first chapter up into, the, you know, up into that first chunk, the lead up of the first you know, chapter and a half is all preparation. It's all resourcing. It's all, okay, if you're going to do this ridiculously difficult thing that I'm telling you to do to live like aliens and strangers, to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you doing wrong, they glorify God on the day he visits us. If you're going to do that, which is really, really, really hard, there's a few things you're going to need to have in your pocket. So he talks about those things first, okay? The organization of it, he kind of gives you, there's a little bit of a clue, there's a little bit of a tip. Because he talks about three living things prior to Chapter 2, verse 11. There's three livings that he gives. And living is, it's an adjective. So it's an, an adjective modifies a noun. There's a living something and a living something else and a living something else else. And our job right now this morning is, to, first of all, to discover what are the three things that you need. You need, to, you need to lock this up. There's these three living things that you got to have if you're going to be able to fulfill this obligation he lays on us in 2.11. Okay? So... You get to discover. So what we're going to do, we're going to, uh, yeah, that's what it works. Okay. So these two, like, columns of columns, like you guys over here, you guys are going to get the first one, middle section. You guys are going to hunt for the second one. And uh, you guys from this way over, Ray right back, you guys are going to look for the third one, okay? And here's your bands. First group, look in chapter 1, verses 3 to 9, okay? Middle group, look in chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. And then the final group... Look in chapter 2, 1 to 8. Okay, so it's 1, 3 to 9. Something is living in your section. Chapter 1, 22 to 25. Something else is living there. And chapter 2, 1 to 8. Something else is living there. Okay, so just go investigate. And don't shout it out yet. Give, give people a chance to kind of hunt and find it. And we'll talk about it in a minute. What is living in section 1, section 2, section 3? Chapter 1, 3 to 9, chapter 1, 22 to 25, chapter 2, 1 to 8. What is living? And if you find yours and you're such a smarty pants, you can go back and look for the other ones too, okay? ready. Did you guys find anything alive in the first section? Okay. Sonia, what'd you find? What's living? Hope. Hope. Very good. Chapter one, there's a living hope. Can you read it? Can you read, can you, can you read this, that, that verse? You give as much context as you want. Very good. All right. And in case you couldn't hear that, because she is a faithful, mask-wearing, non-super spreader, she said something to the effect of, I think she was reading probably ESV. Here it is in the NIV. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope, underline that, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance 
that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, right? We'll unpack that a little more. So there's a living hope. You need a living hope. This is kind of what we've been talking about during this Advent series. You need a living hope. There's got to be a desirable future if you're going to get through the yuck of today, right? We need a living hope. All right, section two. What's alive in your section? Go super loud. Yeah. Uh, The living and enduring word of God. Yes. Did you guys all find that? The living and enduring word of God. Okay, and that verse is, what verse? 23. So come down here and maybe, if you don't mind, just read out loud, you know, that that chunk. How about 22 to 25? How about that? Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another uh, deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not a perishable seed, but an imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. Very good. How about, keep going through 25. There's a little bit more there that's worth looking at. All people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Yeah, so that word is, is being compared, or contrasted, really. There's all these other things that, that live and die, but this word is living, and it's never going to die. Right? It lives. It endures. The grass is going to die. The flowers are going to fall, but not the word. Right? So in the midst of a world that is so shaky and uh, tremulous in a billion different ways, we've got this anchor. Right? Truth claims are just whipping by us all the time. You're like, blah, 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 blah. We have this sure word in an uncertain world where all kinds of false things are constantly being said, and we don't really need to sweat it if we've got this living word that it's never going to die it's never going to fade. It's absolutely rock solid dependent, right? So you need a living hope. You've got that. You need a living word. You've got that. And there's a third thing that Peter says we're going to need to have if you're going to be what you need to be in a decaying culture. And what is the third one over here, you guys? Living stone. stone. Where would you find that, Steve? Verse 4. Of? Uh, chapter 2. All right, so... Give us, um, how about, oh gosh, this is the whole thing. Give us, give us that whole section, four to two, chapter 2, verse 4 to 8. Listen, listen for it here. Living hope, living word, and living stone. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Am I going on? Uh, you could stop there. I mean, it does go on, but we're, we're, we're going to look at these all in more depth. But you, you got the stone, right? Living hope, living word. Living stone. And this one's, you notice this is a strange thing here. There is a living hope, but you're not going to be a living hope. There is a living word, but you're not going to become living words. But there is a living stone. And what else? We can become we'll become right? There's some we're joined. Now, that's interesting. So we'll, we'll get to that. That'll probably be in a week or two. We'll get to there. Bill? Christ is the cornerstone. He's the living stone. That's right. He's the stone, but he's the stone of what? That's it. 
Like, what is that even? Well, we'll get there. We'll get there, we'll get there when we get there. But he's, he's the cornerstone. There's a building. Cornerstone is, a, is an architectural thing. And we're going to be, we're joining with him. We're part of this. We are being built into a spiritual house. We'll unpack what that means when we get there. I doubt we'll get there this week. Living hope, living word, living stone. Living hope, living, uh, living word, living stone. We need to know what those are. Peter said, hey, before I drop some really heavy news on you, before I lay a burden at your feet, let me point out to you what you've got. A living hope, a living stone, a living word. A living word, a living stone. And we're going to kind of try to unpack those as we go. Kat, you saying something? Oh, I just wondered what number two, what verse that was. I couldn't get that right there. Where's the living word? Living and enduring word. Yeah, that is, let's see. 23. 23. Chapter 1, 22 to 23, guys. Uh, 23, yes, 123. Got it? All right. And so I really would, I would encourage you, this is, I'm not making this up. This is not some like linguistic like accident. This is how Peter's organizing his thing. He wants you to use, he's using this repetition to draw your eye. Like, oh, these are the three bullet points here of what it is that he's doing. So what we're going to do now is we're going to just process through it. And we're going to think through, I don't know if we'll get past living hope today. It's fine if we do, but I imagine we, we often don't. Um, I feel like th- this living hope is one that we've been talking about for 100 years here. Like, I have been at some pains to persuade you the absolute centrality in your life. You need to have a living hope. This is why, what, what book did we study that was all about that? <coughs> Revelation. The only reason we studied Revelation is because I'm like, no, 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 you need to see the end of the story. If you're in church this morning, what Psalm 37 that we looked at, you'll see it, second service if you're coming to that. Is all about you need to see the end of the story. I feel a little bit like a broken record, but the reality is you need to see the end of the story, right? And we need to know it. We need to anchor ourselves in it. So take a look. We'll just read again his section, expand it out a little bit, and then we'll talk about this. Um, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope. So you're, you're, that's interesting. You're born into this hope. Like you kind of like you wake up and you open your eyes and you're like, oh, I was born into this. There's some glorious thing that lies in my future, right? You need that. And it says something about an inheritance. You're going to inherit. You're going to come to possess something that you didn't earn, that you didn't build, you didn't buy. That's what an inheritance is, right? You don't deserve your parents' money, but you get it anyway, right? There's, this, there's an inheritance. You didn't do anything to, to acquire this, and yet it'll be given to you, and it's never going to perish. It's never going to spoil. It's never going to fade. It's enduring. It's endurable. Uh, it is... It is uh, it can't break. You can't lose it. It's kept in heaven for you. You, by the way, you're shielded by faith, through faith, by God's power until the coming of the salvation. In some sense, you've already been saved. But in another sense, you're being saved. But in another sense, you will be saved. There's a future tense. There's something good that lies yet ahead. You need to do that. And, and what does that do for you guys, by the way, in verse 6? to you when you ponder this, when you see this, when you become aware of it. Rejoice. You rejoice. We've talked about this a hundred times, right? In the midst of present pain, future happiness floods back into the present to give present happiness. You are happy in the anticipation of that which you do not yet possess, but will certainly someday possess. In this, you greatly rejoice. Though now, right now, you have to suffer grief. That's true. It's going to be difficult. Some things I'm going to ask you to do, they're going to be hard. But all that stuff, all the yuck, these come, they produce something. Remember this, that, that Paul makes a big point about this, that our afflictions achieve glory. Our light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us 
and eternal glory that far outweighs them all. That's what, that's what Peter is saying here. He says that you're formed, you're shaped, you're maturing, you're developed in the midst of this. So you deal with it. And the whole point is at the end of the game, your faith, greater works than gold, will be proved genuine, real result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Enormously, outrageously, super, super happy, positive, really, really good stuff lies in the future. Wait for it and let it, come, let, let it flood back into the present. That's what it means to have a, a, a hope. And it's such a driving theme of the New Testament. I mean, it's just everywhere. It shows up over and over and over again because these guys were living in really painful circumstances. People who are living in painful situations have to have a hopeful future. So I want to hear from you guys. What are the things that have helped you believe in a happy future? And I don't just mean like tomorrow you might get a new job, but I mean the real happy future, the real future that's really happy. What has been meaningful to you? What has been, have there been stories, illustrations, passages from Scripture, other people who have helped you anchor and be like, yes, this is what I think about in the midst of the darkness. Are there are things like that for you that have really landed. Kat? All of the above. <laughs> and as you get older, you can look back and see God's grace throughout your life. And, yes. and when I'm having a problem with the present, I try to look back to the past and see what he's already done for me. Yes, okay, and this is, this is a great comment here, Kat, because what Kat said is it's not just all of these things we've mentioned, but also remembering God's faithfulness in the past. And we've talked about the two great anchors, right? One is hope for the future and gratitude for the past, but the real value of gratitude for the past is that it, it increases our hope for the future because if he was kind to me yesterday, there's good reason to believe that he's going to be kind to me tomorrow. And so this is why the Old Testament has this image of, you know what Ebenezer stones are? <clears throat> You know, well, how, how does that work? They piled the stones up where something happened. In the Old Testament especially, like when they crossed the Jordan into Israel, they piled the stones up. Um, and they, they were memorials. I always kind of wondered, have they ever found any of those? You know, as oh, archaeologists yeah. or whatever. But, yeah. but, um, but they did that throughout the, the, the Old Testament. That's right. That's exactly right. And so Stuart's saying what they would do is, and there's, there's, there's kind of two general methods. You either pile up rocks or you stand up a rock. Right, that naturally wants to lay on its side, so you set it up and to say, like, something happened right here. And so it's a really valuable practice in your life to say, this happened. I was there. I saw it. I remember it. I'm going to build a standing stone because I'm probably I am going to forget it or I'm going to be in a similar situation that seems equally hopeless and I'm going to trust God that he's going to do that. Okay? So how about this? Anybody have one of those in their life? A standing, something, in the, something you've seen God's faithfulness that you use to remind you of his, his goodness. Rita? For some reason, ever since I was a kid and I didn't grow up on a farm with animals, I have always loved sheep. And I wasn't, didn't become a Christian until I was 19. So it didn't have anything to do with God. But he has used lambs or sheep throughout my life. And I have a life-size lamb that was wrapped up on my front porch. It was a gift from a group of ladies and they didn't know when to give it to me, but they felt like that day was the right day. I came home after having uh, a huge breakthrough, um, huge in, in therapy that was just healing. And I came home and that was on the front porch. Yeah. 
and I unwrapped it and I sat there and sobbed over holding the statue and Edith has stayed with me these last 20 years and she reminds me that God knows the perfect time to heal this, to heal that, that, that I may want him to deal with one thing in my life, but if I give myself to him, he deals with what needs to be dealt with in a way that brings beauty and peace and breakthrough. And that's... Okay, so here's what I love about that. Not, not just the particular, not just, or not just the reality that God has spoken in your, into your life and brought peace and rescue and hope and help at the time you needed him, but that you, you've discerned like a theme to how he does that, right? And I wonder if any of you have ever noticed, uh, is there anything conspicuous like that? I have, a, I have a friend, Dan Flynn. He used to direct uh, Campus Crusade at, at JMU. And Dan is a huge baseball fan. And he twice, so strange, twice at like particular difficult moments in his life, he caught a baseball at a professional baseball game. And in and, and both times, it was like imbued with like spiritual meaning. He, has, he gives this great talk. It's called God Can and God Cares. And just in a, in a strange way, God's like, I'm going to throw you a baseball. And he catches the ball you know, in the middle of the thing. Kelly and I, when, when, when Rita started talking, did you think of anything in us? I was thinking, our love language is houses, apparently. God has like blessed us in strange ways um, every time we buy or sell a house. And it's just super weird. And it's really great because buying and selling a house always terrifies me. And so there's all these stories that we've had like over and over again of like really conspicuous, very strange, peculiar um, blessing and kindness in the midst of this fear that we're going to be, you know, we're going to get burned in this. And I wonder, have you noticed this in your life? Is there, are there themes that you feel like in some way I see God's faithfulness through this thing? Helen? I was just going to say that in Celebrate Recovery, we give out chips. And so we have a surrender chip that yeah. we hold on to. And then 30, 60, 90, and then days, and then six months, and so on, and uh, every year after that. Yeah. But those are things that we can physically hold on to that reminds us of God's faithfulness yeah. and where we have come from and where we're going. Excellent. Yeah. So that we, and the wisdom of, of having that is just like we need to be reminded. We need, sometimes we need something tangible that we can point back to, right? Whether that is that you keep a gratitude journal, which is something I've done at different seasons of my life where I was given to despair, just write down every good thing that would happen in any day and then go back and reread re it because I had to like rewire my brain to be hopeful, right? It is past faithfulness that gives me hope for his future kindness. So we'll, we'll, we'll go like that. Yeah. Um, so probably the biggest Fantastic. What a great... How old were you, did you say, when you were adopted? I was 24 days old. Little, little, little. Yeah. God's past faithfulness anchors. It gives us, uh, gives us hope for his future goodness. Excellent. Okay. Let's, let's, go, let's go 
future tense? Are there things that you've seen? Are there depictions of the world to come? Are there passages of scripture that like that speak to you? That have been helpful? Sermons or books or friends? Stuart. Um, when we had N.T. Wright come here, and, and um, it, one of the things that has changed the way I see Revelation now, but he's, he preached in a totally, I mean, probably for the first time, put it in a true context about the new Jerusalem and this whole idea of the whole things just like evaporating. I used to have this envision that the world was going to just like blow into a billion pieces. And, and you talked about it just a little bit ago about going from order to disorder. And that is the, the entropy, the direction of things. But that it's all going to be returned. And that is what Revelation says. And I was an engineer in one of the, the most, um, I was taking thermodynamics and I had, and this is going to sound crazy, but um, I was studying for my thermo exam, which I was horrible. I mean, that, I wasn't a mechanical engineer, and thermo did stuff we had to get through. I was civil. And um, so I was getting into studying, studying, studying. I got, I passed from the scientific side of entropy into the philosophical side of entropy. And that, it dovetails with Christianity. And then all of a sudden, so I had these ideas in my head, and then, and then N.T. Wright comes and talks about the world is heading in despair and just in degrading, you know, and falling apart. But then the new Jerusalem comes, that the, the old, and it's the restored, you know, that we see glimpses of it now yeah. in, of, of, you know, the underside of the tapestry of the new creation that's going to come. Yeah. But we're kind of, you know, messing it up, but at the same time, we do good things with it. That's but right. then all of a sudden, it's going to come. And it's not going to be we fly away. It's going to be restored. That's right. We're not, yeah, we're not escapists. That entropy will be reversed. Sad things will come untrue. I listen to those sermons. They were caught on CD here. <laughs> and I listened to them probably for a few years. At maybe a couple, three times a year. It was like, wow. And, and probably what you were intuitively doing, Stuart, was like you, you're feeding your hope muscle. Right. Or, you know, like you need, you, you need this. And we do, and it would be a good idea. It would, be, it would be wise for each of us to say, I'm going to collect, I'm going to gather, I'm going to keep, I'm going to remind myself of the things that give hope. Because there's plenty of things that rob hope. There's just tons of stuff like that. You get into this destructive view of the, of the, crea- of the world, yeah. and, and it's, not, it's not the truth. Yeah, absolutely. We need, to, we need to capture, we need to see these things and rehearse them and put them before us. Okay, one more. Okay, Dan. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, the classic book is Heaven by Randy Alcorn. Sure. Yep. You know, it's just awesome. It puts real teeth and substance into this kind of vague sense that we, we often have. Yes. Uh, you know, just his thoroughness of scripture is... Yeah. So Rand, it's a great book. Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven. Um, and it, it, he kind of helps you get rid, blow away all the fog and cloudiness, literally or figuratively, that, that, that shapes your view of heaven. And he helps you much more concrete and vivid. Okay, here's, okay, one more, yep. Uh, the bookends in Narnia, like, Aslan creating it, and then the very end of the last battle. Yeah, yeah, so what you see, a magician's nephew is where Narnia starts, uh, and uh, the last battle, uh, where it ends. There's great, there's so much great language there, especially the last battle, because it is about, you know, the final world, where they're further up and further in, right? And there's this sense of, like, them running and not growing weary. It's very Isaiah 40-ish as they're kind of coming into the real Narnia, to which Narnia points, the real London, 
that London drew from, right? I mean, it's, it's fantastic, so I love that stuff. Okay, take a look at the handouts you got. I'll, I'll give you a, a couple of things for me. Thomas Chalmers preached a sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, which I've quoted numerous times because it's fantastic. Here's an excerpt from it. We'll kind of walk through it. Um, he's a little bit high, all right? You gotta, you gotta lean in a little bit here. He says this, conceive a man to be standing on the margin of this green world, and then when he looked toward it, he saw abundance smiling upon every field, and all the blessings which earth can afford scattered in profusion throughout every family, and the light of the sun sweetly resting upon the pleasant habitations and the joys of human companionship, brightening many a happy circle of society. So just imagine a happy person on the edge of a farm, and there's plenty of abundance of food, and there's relationships, and everything is great, right? Just a happy day. It's a sunny day. The fields are producing. You got friends, okay? That's our guy. Now, conceive this to be the general character of the scene upon one side of his contemplation. He's thinking about life in this world. And that on the other, beyond the verge of the godly planet on which he was situated, he could describe nothing but dark and fathomless unknown. So here he is. Today is a great day. There's plenty of wheat in the fields. We've got lots of friends. But I don't know what's going to happen when I die. It's blank. It's a little scary. It's ominous. Okay? Here's your guy. He's got two scenes. He's thinking about this world, and he's thinking about the world to come. But when he thinks about the world to come, he's got nothing. It's scary. Okay? Do you think that he would bid voluntary adieu to all the brightness and all the beauty that were before him on the earth and commit himself to the frightful solitude away from it? Would he leave its peopled dwelling places and become a solitary wanderer through the fields of non-entity? Okay, when you're looking at all the beauty and goodness of this world, and if all you know that lies ahead is just scary and blank and dark, you're like, no, thank you. I don't wanna go into there. That's just terrifying and dark and scary and bad, right? If space offered him nothing but a wilderness, would he for it abandon these homebred scenes of life and cheerfulness that lay so near and exerted such a power of urgency to detain him? Or would he not cling to the regions of sense and of life and of society and shrinking away from the desolation that was beyond it, would he not be glad to keep his firm footing on the territory of this world and to take shelter under the silver canopy that was stretched okay you get them if you got this world that you can see and that world that you know nothing of you will do all that you can to stay in this world for as long as you can i would suggest to you that's the condition of the united states of america we will prolong life at whatever costs as long as we have to because whatever's after it is just too friggin scary have you know have you noticed this we will spend you can spend all your life earning your money, and rather than leaving it to your children, you will just spend it all for one more week in a friggin' nursing home, right? Well, what makes that make sense is like, I don't know what's on the other side of this, so we better get all that we can right here, right now, okay? That's one option. He's going to give you another option. You with me so far? Here's the other option. He says, but if during the time of his contemplation, check this out, some happy island of the blessed had floated by and there had burst upon his senses the light of its surpassing glories and its sounds of sweeter melody 
And he clearly saw that there a purer beauty rested upon every field. And that more heartfelt joy spread itself among all the families. And he could discern there a peace and a piety and a benevolence which put a moral gladness into every bosom and united the whole society in one rejoicing sympathy with each other and with the beneficent father of them all. Okay? So now you still got this world exactly the way it is, but now the darkness and the blankness and the scariness of what lies ahead is transformed because this happy island of the blessed floats by. You're like, oh, 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 that is better than this. It goes from being like, this is a bird in the hand is better than like darkness and nothing, you know? If, but if you realize, oh, it's amazing, it's happy, it's better, it's more than, then in an instant you're like, okay, everything changes. Everything, one second, Jennifer. Everything is now, the, the equation has radically changed, okay? And could he further see that not only were all these good things, but pain and mortality were there unknown? And above all, check this out that signals of welcome were hung out and an avenue of communication was made for him. The image is radically transformed. Would, how does it go? Perceive you not that what was before the wilderness would become the land of invitation and that now the world would be the wilderness. <clears throat> Suddenly the math is flipped. And he concludes this. What unpeopled space could not do can be done by space teeming with beatific scenes and beatific society. And let the existing tendencies of the heart be what they may to the scene that is near and visibly around us. Still, if another stood revealed to the prospect of man, either through the channel of faith or through the channel of his senses, then without violence done to the constitution of his moral nature, may he die under the present world and live to the lovelier world that stands in the distance away from us. What he's been saying here throughout this whole sermon that we didn't read is that you love what you possess and you're not going to ever let go of it unless or until I show you something better. And then you're like, okay, no problem. I will ditch that in a heartbeat because this is better but I will have to fight you and kick you to get you to pry your hands off this thing if you don't think you're trading up. Okay. Does that all make sense? It is therefore crucially important that you know that in fact you're trading up. If you know that glory waits you, happiness, supremacy of all good things, then all the things that you cling and fight and scramble for, just they become like sand. They just fine, who cares? <coughs> you're gonna be more generous you're going to be more patient. You're going to be more everything because glory awaits But if you don't cultivate this, if all you can see is the darkness, then you're going to, this is all there is, and you better fight to keep it. Okay? You need a living hope, and it'll anchor and change your life. Jennifer. I read this essay years and years ago. I thought it was Norman Vincent Peale, but I've never been able to find it again. And it's describing this person and, and there, there's a light at the end of the tunnel and they have to go to the light and, and as you're reading it you think it's death, a death experience and at the end of the story it's really a baby going through the birth canal mm. into the world Oh sure. they think is wonderful versus where they're going and what we have now 
and what we could be going. So I thought of that story, the uh, essay, when you were talking about Yeah, that. sure. And the baby thinks that the womb is safe and warm and there's food and everything's great, and they can't imagine the, the happiness and the joy that could be theirs. Yeah, it's the same thing. And you need, we, we need the living hope. And not just that we need it um, in order to like, let go of this world, but we need it so that we treat this world the way it ought to be treated. You need to live in light of reality. I, I, col- I literally collect these things, right? Um, and I got all kinds of illustrations that I could draw from, different things that I've heard that I've like, I got to remember that. I need that. And I would just advocate to you that it's, it's profitable to, to, man- to, to collect these things, to savor them up, to remember them. Lily? Um, we're, oh, Lord, help me. Um, we've been talking about forward to the ultimate hope, but um, I love that the scriptures show it's the living hope, and I love that story, because it's very temporal, it's right here, right now, you know, it's still in the midst of, you know, we're living in time, eternity has not come to fruition, and you talk about storing up these things to, con- to contribute to your hope, there's, um, this verse came to mind earlier, and bear with me, this might seem non sequitur. Um, but in 1 Timothy, it's written, this, I charge, this charge I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Um, so some of the most powerful hopes for me have been things that God has specifically spoken about my children, but it's for their futures. So... Like, occasionally I'll, I'll feel like the Lord has said a specific word, and Tommy, I'll share that with him, and he'll say, oh, yeah, I feel like the Spirit has said that about my child, too. Mm-hmm. Like, with Shem, um, I ha- actually had someone give me a specific prophetic word that he was steadfast, and that was the word that the Spirit had continually spoken to me. So whenever I have doubts about the current situation, not just because I'm looking toward our ultimate hope, but because God has actually planted these seeds of hope by his, by his specific words spoken now. So I suppose that's an encouragement not only to, I hope it's an encouragement not only to look to our ultimate future, but to ask God for those Ebenezer's of hope that he's pointing to in this world. Because by then we wage the good warfare also and maintain our hope in this world. That's exactly right. So it's not just his past faithfulness that gives us a picture of the ultimate future, but it's our, his future faith, his future interim faithfulness that will in turn kind of spur us on, and we need to capture them and not, not miss them. That if we, if we have as one of our goals in life is the cultivation of hope, then we will be collecting these things as they come, collecting the rocks, if you will, with which you're going to build that, that, you know, that, Ebe, that Ebenezer monument. Exactly right. Excellent. Okay, we got a minute for one more. I'm going to flip it over. I have quoted to you multiple times in the past a particular... So this, uh, this is Jonathan Edwards. I'm always, I know I always quote Jonathan Edwards, but, I mean, you guys, you just got to read this guy. Um, he, he preached a sermon called The Portion of the Righteous. And I've, I've quoted that with you guys here in the past. Um, it's, the, the sermon is 42 pages long, okay? My sermons are six pages long. It's li- it would literally take three and a half hours to preach. I don't know what the heck that was all about, Okay. 42 pages long. It goes on and on and on and on. And the, the title of it is The Portion of the Righteous. It's, it's basically a comprehensive cataloging of all the things that we have in Christ. He's like, 
These are the good things while you're living. These are the good things as you face your death. These are the good things between your death and your resurrection. These are the good things as the resurrection begins. This is what's going to happen on day two of the resurrection. Then after day three, it's going to get really good. And it just goes, it just goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on. This is what you get, all right? It's exceptional. I'll just give you, and I'm like, what, what part do I even, how do you summarize a 42-page sermon? He says this. When he finally gets, he's like deep into this. This is, you know, page 35 or something. And he's like, this is what we're going to have. We, we will see God. Okay, but here's what that means, Okay. He says, they shall see everything in God that tends to excite. Are you, are you find this on the flip side of that sheet. They shall see everything in God that tends to excite and inflame love, i.e. everything that is lovely. And everything that tends to exalt their esteem and admiration to warm and endear the heart. They shall behold the infinite excellency and glory of God and shall have a blessed making sight of his glorious majesty and of his infinite holiness. They shall see as those angels do, of whom we read in Isaiah 6, 3, that standing before the throne, they cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. You will see what they see that overwhelms them. His holiness will be manifest to you. They will behold the infinite grace and goodness of God. And then shall that glorious fountain and ocean of his goodness be open fully to their view. Then they shall behold all its excellency and loveliness, and they shall have a clear sight of his immense glory and excellency. And then he says this. I like the second paragraph better. They shall see everything in God that gratifies love. They shall see in him all that love desires. And love desires the love of the beloved, right? Isn't that right? If you love somebody, do you want them to love you back? <clears throat> You will see him, you will love him, and you'll think, oh, man, I wish he loved me. And so the saints in glory shall see God's transcendent love to them. God will make ineffable manifestations of his love to them. They shall see as much of God in love towards them as they desire, and neither will they crave or can they crave anymore. This very manifestation that God will make of himself that will cause the beatific vision will be an act of love in God. And it will be from the exceeding love of God to them that he will give them this vision, which will add an immense sweetness to it. When they see God, so glorious, and at the same time see how greatly this God loves them, what delight will it not cause in the soul? And then he says this, love desires union, right? So I see somebody that I love, I want them to love me back. And if they do love me back, I want to be united to them. Love desires union, and they shall therefore see this glorious God united to them and see themselves united to him. They shall see that he is their father, that they are his children. They shall see that God is gloriously present with them, that God is with them, God is in them, and they are in God. Not only that, you guys, but love desires the possession of its object. I want you to love me, and then I want to be with you, and then I want to own you. Love desires the possession of its object. Therefore, they shall see that God is even their own God. When they behold this transcendent glory of God, they shall see him as their own. And when they see that glory, power, wisdom of God, they shall see it as altogether engaged for them. And when they shall see the beauty of God's holiness, they shall see it as their own for them to enjoy. And when they see the boundless ocean of God's goodness and grace, they shall see it all to be theirs. 42 pages of this. He goes on and on and on. 
because we need to have a sense of like such deliciousness lies ahead. Such an absolute perfect meeting of our deepest and most abiding longings will be met and fully met, and that forever. You need a living hope. We have so much basis for a living hope if we will just look for it, see it, collect it, gather it. We need that. We're also going to need a living stone. We're also going to need a living word. We have those two, okay? We have all that we need. God has given us, as Peter says in 2 Peter, he's given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness, right? We're going to see two more of those things. We may be able to get through both of them next week. And then once, we're, once we recognize how loaded we are, how full our ammunition belts is, then we'll see, okay, what, what's the mission? What do I do with such great resources? Okay? That's all for now. Amen. Thank you, Dan.